Some children are sensitive, but I'm not talking about the child that's quick to tear up or is shy. I'm talking about the empathic child who sees or feels things before they happen. They worry about things other people can't see. They have the ability to sense things. And maybe, just maybe, 10-year-old Lindsay Baum had that gift to sense light that exists around us, but darkness, too. A skeptic would scoff at the word psychic, would point to Lindsay's love of Harry Potter and Twilight for her fear of the dark, a time Lindsay would refer to as the witching hour, when evil spirits are at their most powerful. But Lindsay's mom believed in her girl's heightened intuition, particularly that summer in 2009. She remembers it well, because it haunts her. The fact that Lindsay didn't know what, but that something, something wicked, this way comes. And she said, Mom, I just have this really bad feeling that something bad's gonna happen. Tragically, Lindsay's premonition was right. Just one week later, after a day playing with friends, and later that evening, Lindsay at her friend's house just down the street. But the friend's mom put the kibosh on her daughter sleeping over at Lindsay's house. So that night, instead of walking back to her house with her friend as planned, Lindsay was on her own. a few short blocks. It should have just taken 10 minutes, but as dusk turned into darkness, Lindsay vanished without a trace. No one who was outside of that evening recalls seeing her walk by. Everybody knew who Lindsay was. You know, the nice thing about small towns is you know, everybody knows who everybody is, and the bad thing about small towns is everybody knows who everybody is. Over 10 years later, and we still don't know exactly what happened to Lindsay Baum. But for Lindsay's mother, as she searched tirelessly for her daughter, she realized that things weren't always as they seemed in that small town. I thought Eva to Beaver. And now when I think of it, I think of deliverance. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. So Lindsay had that sixth sense. She sensed something in the darkness. I think that's so interesting. I, I, I talk about my own kids. A couple of them I feel like are old souls. I just feel like they can see connections that aren't obvious to the rest of us, mm -hmm. which I think is sort of similar to what you're talking about here with Lindsay, where she, she felt something or she saw something or understood something that just wasn't as clear to the rest of us. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I just, talking to her for an hour and a half, and I'll tell you, it was one of the hardest interviews that I've ever done because, you Lindsay's know, mom. Lindsay's mom. Because I can imagine that you never get over it, and and um, it was just a really hard interview. And, but I, and there were so many things about our conversation that I can relate to, which, and, and one of it is her describing her daughter's fear. And, you know, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, that sense there are kids who you can tell, like, you know, that they, they sense things. And it's a really hard, it's really hard as a parent because, in, and as is was in this case, well, how do you, how do you prepare for that? How do you, 
help your, you know, kid through that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't anything specific. And yet, a week later, you know, she disappeared. And for Lindsay's mom, too, this case just keeps coming back up. I mean, it was years before they found Lindsay's body, which I'm sure we'll get into. But then after that, identifying suspects and then trying to put out more information for a reward. And it seems like every year, too, there mm-hmm. is something that happens that brings this all back to the surface for the whole community, much yeah. less, you know, just yeah, Lindsay's beyond, family. And beyond. And the, and as I mentioned in the scenes that are, there's definitely something happening in the community related to this case. But first, you know, I wanted to give a little backstory to start, you know, how um, – how to understand what happened and not just, you know, the headline story, but what was going on in the town, what was going on with the family. You know, I think that, you know, we have time to do it here. And so I really am, you know, that's what I love about podcasting is it gives you time to do that deep dive. But I interviewed Melissa Baum, Lindsay's mom, and the Grays Harbor Sheriff Rick Scott, who has been on this case since the very beginning. But first, I need to set this up properly. Because there's a lot, as I said, to this tragic story that hasn't been in the headlines. So I want to go back and talk about the Baum family and what brought Melissa and her two children to McCleary, a small town. It's about 30 minutes from the Olympia Lacey area. And remember, Olympia is the state capital of Washington. So it's a small town, but it's not too far away from the big city of Olympia. So before moving to Washington, Melissa had lived in Tennessee with her husband. He was in the military and and Melissa was a stay-at-home mom to Irish twins, uh, Josh and Lindsay, who were just one year apart. But the marriage was rocky, and Melissa said she didn't want her kids to grow up as she had in a chaotic household. So she moved back to Washington in 2007 as a single mom. And we were living in just a little two-bedroom apartment in Lacey. And moving from Tennessee, uh, where we had lived in small towns for several years after getting out of the Army, I just was overwhelmed, especially at just how much Lacey had exploded during the years that I was away. And I really had some trouble with childcare when we first moved back. And I was a single parent. I was getting nothing from my ex-husband. He was 100% absent from the day that the kids and I got on the plane. And my son, who um, has autism, we, we were struggling with childcare. He, he, he got expelled from three different YCARES in the North Thurston School District. And there was no services. Like, I, I, like there was just nothing. You're nodding your head. I've heard this story many. I worked for a nonprofit for a short time that, that dealt with children with disabilities. So I, I've heard the story many times. I'm kind of surprised that her answer to that was moving to a small town. Typically, if, if people have trouble getting services, they move closer to a big city where those things are more available. Well, and here's what's so cool is that her, a friend of Melissa's, since brownies, she said, Aww. offered to babysit before and after school for Melissa. So the it was in the uh, small town of Elma, which is right by McCleary. So uh, they couldn't get a, a home in Elma, so they got a house in McCleary. And it wasn't her first choice, but she made do. And life was a struggle. She commuted to Olympia and was just trying to make it work. But the safety and the welfare of her children was always the most important priority in her life. I, I was one of those paranoid mothers, like if you, Lindsay, for one, set up my MySpace, I wasn't, I, I wasn't even as tech savvy as she was. And, you know, I didn't even put pictures. The only pictures of my kids were of them in their Halloween costumes and stuff. Like I was always 
so fearful. And I was recently divorced, like very, very recently divorced. And it was Lindsay pushing me to try and date. And I was so fearful of inviting somebody into our life um, that would hurt my kids. And it's just weird that I, I tried to be so cautious. I used to pull up the sex offender registry in the area. And I would make both of my kids and any of their friends that were around, because they always had friends at the house, always, look at them and say, you know, make sure they knew what they looked like in case they ever saw them. They knew, you know, to stay away and to come straight home. So they lived in McCleary for almost two years, but Melissa was ready for a change. In fact, she was planning to move out of the town by the end of summer 2009. Her childcare had fallen apart again after her son had turned 12 and he'd aged out of the daycare that he was going to. And everything was just a struggle there. Talking to Melissa, she just wanted to get her kids in good schools. And that was tough with Josh being autistic. But that summer, the kids were having a ball. Lindsay had loads of friends and spent a lot of time with them at, 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 the, at the park. And in fact, on June 26, 2009, it was a scorcher. It was a really hot summer here in the Pacific Northwest. Lindsay had spent the day at a pool party. She and Josh, that's her brother, had come back home together with her friend Michaela at around 8, you know, begging her mom to let Michaela have a sleepover. So they'd been out. You can just imagine, you know, they're in this small town. They've been out all day playing. They, mom, mom, you know, really excited. And they left my house. They um, were going to run to Michaela's and get Michaela's clothes and come straight back. Like, we're talking 15 minutes round trip. And I said, well, you guys make a hurry up and come straight back. It's going to be dark before long. And it was not dark. And Lindsay didn't like to be out after dark. And I knew that my car wasn't running. So I was just telling her, you know, I can't come pick you up. So hurry up and get back here before dark. And when she was leaving, um, I had mentioned, you know, if that if that man looking for his dog comes back around, you know, not to get close enough to a car for somebody to reach out and grab you, right? And she looked at me and she goes, duh, mom, I'm not stupid. And she pranced out the door. And that was the last conversation that you had with Lindsay? The last word she said to me. That's right. The last thing. She sounds like such a mature child for her age. And that's what um, Melissa would say, that she was a really mature child for her age. And Just when I heard that, that she was allowing her to walk to her friend's house and walk home near dark when she had a child who was afraid of the dark... My initial thought was, why would you do that? Why would you allow your child to be out past dark if you knew they were afraid of it? Yeah, and I actually talked with Sheriff Scott first, and I asked him that same question because, I mean, I felt – I think that most moms and dads, you know, parents, hackles will get raised at that, and this is what he had to say. Look, the city of McClary at that time and and to this day has a very, very low crime rate. It's a bedroom community to – to Olympia. So a lot of the people that live in McClary, very few actually work in McClary unless they work at the mill, which is the primary local source of employment. It's a very quiet community. And so it, it was totally within the norm for children Lindsay's age to be out playing on a what was at that time a very hot two weeks of summer. Uh, the weather was beautiful and uh, so kids were out playing until dark, and that was the norm. So the fact that she didn't get home until by dark was concerning, but it wasn't extremely unusual. And in fact, Melissa says 
everything that could have gone wrong that night went wrong. I, I still can't explain that night. It is like the world turned upside down for that night. I, I still cannot explain how everything that went wrong could have gone wrong, but it did. My car wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't use my car. My car was broken. Otherwise, she wouldn't have ever been walking. She left her cell phone at home, which I'm, I'm 90, 99.9% sure was accidental because she never went anywhere without her cell phone. She'd take her charger if her phone was going to die. She didn't take our German Shepherd that went everywhere with her. She left the house with like half a dozen kids, including my son and her friend. And they all went their separate ways. And then my son, who turned around and came back home because they'd gotten in an argument over her breaking the chain on his bike. And she just dumped the bike on the side of the road and said, oh, I'll get it on the way back home. And he's like, wait a minute, you can't just leave my bike on the side of the road. And a friend of mine that lived just before where they were going texted me and said, oh, I saw the kids. They were fighting. So I sent Josh home. I love the fact that she had friends along the way who were looking out for her kids and called when they when they noticed there was trouble. I mean, that just tells you about this small town and, and about this family. Yeah. And sent the sent Josh packing. I and love that. I know. So you really couldn't have a safer environment for kids when you know your neighbors and you know that they care about your kids and they're willing to look out for them and speak up for them like there couldn't have been a safer environment. Well, and another thing is, you know, she's a single parent that's like so, I mean, just as she describes everything going wrong, like, you know, when you're on your own and you have all these, I mean, it makes me want to tear up right now because it's like she's doing the best that she can. She's got her kids in the safe environment. You know, she's got this community behind her. And yet, as she said, you know, everything went wrong. So if you're tracking, you know, Josh was sent back because Lindsay and he got in that fight about the bike um, over to as they went over to Michaela's just normal kid stuff. But as it started to get darker and Lindsay and Michaela hadn't returned, Melissa started to get worried. Started trying to call her and she wasn't answering. And I was trying to call her friend's mom, who also wasn't answering. Apparently her phone, if I remember correctly, was dead. But she did call me back a little while later. And she's like, well, no, Lindsay's been gone, I want to say, like, 20 minutes or 30 minutes at that point. I don't remember exactly. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Like, okay. And I went out and I was looking for her and I was calling for her and I started kept calling her phone and I left her several voicemails like, Lindsay Joe, when you get home, you're grounded for a month. I bought you a phone so that I can <laughs> yes. keep in contact with you. And when you don't answer it, you don't deserve to have it. Like I was, I went through a getting angry to total panic. Like, Lindsay, where are you? I need you to come home right now. And it wasn't completely dark, but it was darker than dusk for sure by this point. Now, you mentioned that she went to Michaela's house because they were going to get her stuff for a sleepover. But what happened to that sleepover? Michaela wasn't coming back with her? Well, so they left the house at around 8 o'clock just walking down to get Michaela's, you know, clothes. And so they had it all worked out that that she was going to have a sleepover. Melissa had yes to having Michaela sleeping over at their house. But by the time they got to Michaela's, Michaela's mom was like, you're not having a sleepover Ah, over there. And Lindsay isn't having a sleepover over here. But all of this is happening in real time. And, 
you know, Melissa doesn't know anything about it. She's still waiting for her daughter to return with Michaela. And as you know, I mean, we're totally relating to what it's like to go from irritated of, you know, where's my kid? You know, she's probably thinking, oh, they got caught up over there. And she's probably chit chatting or stopped to pet somebody's dog. Or I mean, if you know (laughs) all your neighbors, you never know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But then suddenly that where's my kid goes to full on panic. Where's where's my kid? You know, that universal fear of like they were just here and now they're gone. Apparently, Michaela's mom, as I said, nicks that sleepover. And so at around 930, Lindsay left Michaela's for home in what should have been a 10-minute walk. Now, remember, as a reminder, Lindsay was a little whippersnapper. You know, it sounds like the way that Melissa would describe her daughter. uh, But her mom also described her as my clinging vine. She's just 10 years old. She was afraid of the dark. Her mom says she was superstitious about it, that darkness brings the witching hour. It was such a specific thing to say, witching hour. It's kind of left me like, yeah, we know what the witching hour is. So I looked it up, and in folklore, the witching hour or the devil's hour is a time of night associated with supernatural events. Witches, demons, and ghosts are thought to appear and to be at their most powerful as black magic. Now, I am not trying to bring woo-woo into this, but, you know, she obviously, the little girl. She had these, a feeling these for things some were on reason. Her mind, and it could you know? be that she had this feeling that something bad was going to happen. And that was her brain's way of interpreting that. Yeah. So I'm sure that her mom knowing her is thinking this too. I mean, she's brought up in these cuts like, I know she's afraid of the dark, you know. So they obviously had conversations about it. So Melissa was so desperate at that point, she actually sent out Lindsay's beloved German shepherd cadence to go find her little human. And you can imagine Melissa pacing the hallway. She doesn't have the support of a partner to lean into. She's on her own, and she is no doubt just trying to keep it together, frantically calling Lindsay. But her cool head evaporates when she hears something. As I was walking down the hall calling her, I heard her phone ringing in her bedroom. And that's oh when I realized gosh. that her phone was at home. And I'm like, what the hell? So then I picked up her phone and started calling everybody in her phone. And then nobody had seen her. That's when I called Grace Harbor County Dispatch and and told them, like, my daughter didn't come home. She should have been here a a while ago. And so as a mom, do you go out looking for your kid? Do you stay home making phone calls and wait and hope she comes home? I mean, especially as a single parent, you can't be in both places at once. That had to be just so frustrating. I know. I mean, just I think it says it all that she sent the dog out to try to go and, and help find her. Fortunately, Michaela's parents started driving around looking for Lindsay, and very quickly, other parents began to look, too. McCleary police were the first to arrive on the scene at around 10 o'clock. But Sheriff Rick Scott from the Grays Harbor Sheriff's Office explained that very quickly they offered assistance. So the city of McCleary is a very small community in our eastern edge of Grays Harbor County. They, at the time, had a chief of police and, I believe, three officers. One of their officers was called out at 10 o'clock that Friday night to initiate the search for Lindsay. And then one of my patrol sergeants, because they're on the same frequency we are, was kind of listening about to what was going on, realized that they were looking for a juvenile female. And as the night wore on, he eventually went down there and offered our assistance in, in trying to help locate her. So at this point, the small town is quickly on high alert. People are coming out of the woodwork to help search into the night. You know, neighbors just rallying. I mean, 
What's great is that everyone took this seriously very quickly. I can imagine as the sheriff sergeant or the officers are knocking on people's doors and waking them up, those people then stay awake and join the search. So it's probably like a snowball through the night. Yeah, it is. And because so little crime happens there, you know, it's not like... What everybody knows everybody. What Lindsay, you know, everybody was quick to answer that call. But I asked Melissa, like, such a gut wrenching question. What was that like when it's your daughter vanishes into thin air and suddenly, you know, it, it had ramped up so quickly? It was after the sergeant left my house. Oh gosh, it was probably eleven thirty. I just remember standing there at the end of my driveway and. Um, it, it like hit me. It was like it slapped me in the face. I, I was standing at the foot of my driveway, like trying to look in every direction and trying to think, what am I going to do? Where do I, you, you know? And it just kind of hit me. And I standing there with three phones in my hand. I had our house phone and my cell phone and her cell phone. And um, it just hit me like this can't be happening. That was that was what I thought. That was my, my like this this can't be happening. This doesn't happen. By sunrise and still no Lindsay, Grace Harbor Sheriff Rick Scott says they really started to get worried. So by Saturday morning, activated a huge number of search and rescue volunteers to aid in searching the area. And we still hadn't ruled out that she was hiding out at a friend's house or something of that nature overnight. But as the day wore on and we began to canvass the neighborhood, and talked to the campus whose residence she had left at about 9.30 to head home. That's when we realized there was more to this than her just disappearing. She'd left her phone at home. She had no money. She was 10 years old and had no viable means to stay away for any length of time. So that's when we learned that she was last seen between 4th and 6th Street on Maple going east towards her home. And so those were really the only initial clues that we had were that we knew what time she'd left their home. We knew that it was a 10-minute walk to her home, essentially a straight line. And we had two different people who verified that they saw her in that two-block period. So they're baffled by her disappearance. I can't stop thinking about Lindsay's mom and the fact that she still has a son at home. Yeah. Who is young and autistic. How is she dealing with that? And how is he dealing with the fact that his sister is missing? Well, and that he just got in a fight with her, you know, hours before. And also that, you know, the first people that they look at when these, you know, people were looking for her very quickly. But, you know, the family is always because in most cases, it's the family. And a lot of times when you have a child with special needs, with developmental disabilities, there's sort of this assumption that they might be involved. And we'll get to that more later. But yes, all of the things that you're asking, it's it's a very stressful time. They're going through her laptop. They were like, hey, you were planning on leaving here soon, weren't you? And she's like, yeah. I mean, it was no secret that, you know, she was ready to, you know, leave McCleary for a bunch of different reasons. And none of which had anything to do with Lindsay being taken, you know, as she walked home. Another thing that's so hard about this case is that they had no forensic or DNA or witnesses, nothing. But they did have what most small towns don't, which is that Sheriff Rick Scott was a graduate of the FBI's National Academy. So he leaned into that, asking the FBI for help and law enforcement all over the state of Washington. Sunday morning, I had about 30-some local detectives roll into town and about 30-some FBI agents roll into town. By Monday, I had close to 100 detectives 
and FBI agents, along with the Missing and Exploited Children's Unit from the State Patrol. FBI also activated a Missing and Exploited Children's Unit, and so we had a huge input of regional, local, state, and federal investigators come together to form a team of investigators that would be in McClary for not just weeks, but for months to come as we worked this investigation. At the same time, I continued to run the search and rescue component, and we brought in resources and set up food and provisions for all the detectives and volunteers, and we basically worked to a large degree around the clock nonstop for the rest of that summer and well into the fall of 2009. Now, if this were a a TV mystery, I imagine that all of these officers would be staged at Lindsay's home with her mom sitting by the phone, worried, waiting for that phone call. But what was her mom actually doing in this time? Was she at home? Was she being questioned? Was there an investigation happening? Was she going to work? Like what? I mean, how do you actually carry on with your life? What was actually happening as this search for her daughter is is happening? Well, she will say that her life stopped that night. I mean, she, you know, basically all of those things were happening. That weekend, hundreds of searchers sent dogs, helicopters from above, horseback, police divers, searched waterways. You know, this was a huge undertaking. She was out looking for Lindsay. I mean, it was a huge effort for this small town to mobilize such amazing resources to try to find this little girl. And Melissa would say, you know, she her worry was that she was stuck in some ditch somewhere. You know, she wasn't thinking the absolute worst. I mean, I'm sure that thought maybe, you know, came into her mind. She and probably then she had to push it away, it away because yeah, you can't go on searching if if you dwell on that. Yeah. So with with so few leads, literally no leads, you know, you have to look under every rock, which has been one of the most challenging things about this investigation. There's no way to rule anything out or anyone out. The other complexity that we were dealing with is most cases you have trouble developing any people of interest in an investigation. Our problem was is we had so many people of interest because we had to be so comprehensive. So we had to look at the registered sex offenders. We had to look at people who had been arrested but not convicted for suspected sex crimes. We had to look at anybody and everybody who we could identify that was out and about that night. And so as we would pour through these things, different people would become persons of interest, some for a matter of minutes, and some remain that to this day. So to give you an idea of what something else Melissa was agonizing over at this time were some interactions that her daughter had told her about in the week leading up to her disappearance. Lindsay had told her mom that she and a friend were in the public restroom at the park and a guy walked in on them and then took off on a bike and that she and her friend felt like another guy was following them in a white car. So that she was telling officers every single story, every single mining, everything in her, you know, in their life, like who could this be? But it could have been nothing. Like my my daughters are afraid of white vans. Anytime they see a white <laughs> van, they're they're like, look <laughs> yeah. out! There's a white van. Could yeah. be nothing, but you know. Yeah. So I could yeah. see where it's like, okay, that's good information. But at the same time, it's like, okay, there was a car. I mean, and what they do you had do to, with that? They had to run it down. Everything that white vehicle they found that matched the description was seen on a surveillance video at a mm. gas station nearby, close to the time Lindsay disappeared. That lead was investigated, but nothing came of it. It's really all such a fuzz to me now. I mean, it's almost like I was out of my body. I, I don't even know. I 
Yeah, I mean, days just turned into weeks and... Weeks into months, months into years. Um, I want to talk about, at this point, kind of a rough outline. So in November of 2009, uh, Lindsey Baum's face was on the cover of People magazine, which Sheriff Scott says the national attention, you know, just added to the pressure. When you have a case take on national attention, and we've had that happen before on, on other some other cases, but not nearly to the extent that, that Lindsey's case did... It brings out a lot of the people who, you know, the, the psychics and, and the people who are the cyber sleuths around the world. And so the Internet you know, has shrunk the world to the size of a dime. And so we were getting information from literally all over the world, and we were getting inquiries from all over the world. That's distracting to the investigators. So we worked very hard to manage that portion of the investigation and not burden any of the investigators that were out there trying to develop the investigation. Now, Lindsay's mom says the dad was out of the picture Mm -hmm. since they left Tennessee. Did he ever come back after his daughter disappeared? I mean, did he ever even seem to care? No, I think he did. We didn't talk a lot about the dad in the investigation. It sounds like, you know, Lindsay and her mom, not to say that it's not about his own child, but I, I feel like... You know, he maybe was more in the background, but he definitely obviously loved his daughter. And um, I think that he was going for another tour in Iraq. And so, oh, okay. you know, I mean, he definitely is in the picture. But in terms of a presence in the town day to day, day to day, I mean, Melissa was her daughter's champion. So uh, back to the timeline. In 2010, police and FBI searched the home of a 47-year-old man who provided inconsistent statements to police. No arrests were made. 2012, sheriff's deputies and FBI got a search warrant for the home of a local shop owner and named him a person of interest. Law enforcement allegedly found ropes and handwritten notes about Lindsay's disappearance. Again, no arrests were made. And then in 2014, police investigated another man, but again, no arrests were made. So I want to go in a little deeper into this local shop owner. He said he wasn't in McCleary on the night Lindsay disappeared, but police ended up finding video footage with a timestamp around 9.15. He's making a purchase at a convenience store. He said he unintentionally gave false information to authorities about his whereabouts on the night Lindsay vanished, but he maintains his innocence, saying he knows nothing about what happened to the girl and actually helped search for her. He says he showed investigators a certificate showing that he'd been in a class in Belfair until 9 p.m. on June 26th and couldn't have made it to McCleary by 9.15. But he says FBI investigators then determined that the class actually had ended at 8.15. So I got this information. That's according to a report from Como News, who he told them, quote, I still don't remember being there the night Lindsay disappeared, but they have me at Mike's Market at 2115 on their camera because I looked at the picture and I said, yeah, that is me. But I still don't remember being here at that time. Well, this was, what, years after Lindsay's disappearance that they questioned him? No, I think it was in uh, January 2010 right? That they did. But it was still mo- so months after the disappearance. Yeah, I mean, months. Do you remember yeah. where you were last November? You know, I think it's a... I think it's a hard call with this. I I didn't include the guy's name because even though it's been out there in the media in this report that I'm referring to from Como, because we're not from this small town. We don't know. He could be completely innocent. He's one of these guys that has gotten roped into it. But then again, we don't know. Unfortunately, I think his life has probably been... You know, Turned has upside this huge down for it. stain yeah. on this. But if he's a person of interest simply because 
he doesn't remember where he was six months earlier. That just, it's not right. I mean, I don't remember where I was six months ago on a Wednesday evening. I, I don't know. I think that since he went searching and helped search, he said, so let me, so there's a little bit more detail. So okay. the man would go on to tell Como that he'd made an ambulance run later in the evening of June 26. And when he returned to McCleary, the search for Lindsay already was underway. He says Chief George Crum of the McCleary Police Department then asked him to join in the search, which he did. But Chief Crum now says he doesn't remember asking him to take part. After the joining in the search for a while, Hartman says he returned home but couldn't sleep, so he went out searching again. It was then at about 1 a.m. that he says he ran into Lindsay's mother and he and says he drove her to a local creek where Lindsay sometimes went to play in hopes they would find her. So, you know, I, I feel like they're not asking him for some specific day. They're asking him on the day that everybody probably knows where they were in McCleary on June 26th. Right. But I mean, to say, well, you got home at 9.15. Oh, no, I got home at 8.15. I mean, that's such a minor discrepancy in my mind mm-hmm. that, that it's not enough to hang your hat on for an investigation to call somebody a person of interest over that. I, it just seems very like a very thin thread. When I talked to Sheriff Scott, I asked him specifically about this person of interest. And, you know, he really didn't want to talk about it, which, you know, he's like, this is an active investigation. So maybe I there's something it. more that they know or and, other and maybe, information and, they have. And you're right. You know, maybe there isn't anything. And he was just trying to help. And that's where cases like this are so tough, because you can easily, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, say the wrong thing. You know, get wrapped up and be called a person of interest because you drove a white sedan. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So this person of interest also said he was interrogated by police for about eight hours in January and has taken two polygraph tests. He says he initially was told that he passed the first test, but later was told that he had failed it. So he took a second test, which investigators told him was inconclusive. So in the summer of 2017, something else happened. And this was huge. And, you know, not only McCleary, but um, in Seattle and beyond, um, we talked about the case in one of our episodes, House of Horrors, about the Emery brothers, who were also persons of interest. You want to set this up? Yeah. So there were four Emery brothers. Three of them lived in Seattle. Um, There was some pornographic material and other evidence that there may have been some child abuse that happened in that home. And they also found a flyer of Lindsey Baum. And so one of the Emery brothers, the fourth Emery brother, the eldest brother, lived near McCleary. And so there was some connection there, even though it was years later, and even though these brothers lived in Seattle, there was a connection with Lindsey Baum. So the investigators went to that home of the Emery brother and did this extensive search with, again, the cadaver dogs and dozens of investigators. And it was a multiple acre property. I can't remember, five or six acres, something like that. And and didn't come up with anything. But it's it's a relatively large wooded property. And so there's still kind of some thought that there could be a connection there. Yeah. And, and one of the Emery brothers who lived in Seattle had this manifesto about killing and, and torturing little kids. So it wasn't a huge stretch at the time for them to be like, hey, Well, and maybe. then to find the flyer of Lindsay, right, I, you know. <laughs> right. But eventually the Emery brothers were cleared. Well, I don't know if we want to say cleared because no charges were brought against them. But at the same time, there's no way to conclusively say for sure that they weren't involved. Yeah. So I basically, I thought there could be a little bit more meat on the bone considering these brothers. And I really highly recommend you go back and listen to House of Horrors because it truly was a House of Horrors. Um, But this is what Sheriff Scott had to say about that. We ruled them out 
their only involvement in this investigation was that when the King County authorities searched the home in Seattle, they found one of Lindsay's missing person flyers in the home. But we would later find out that the brother who lived out on the canal in Mason County regularly passed through McClary, and we were handing out those flyers to anybody and everybody. I don't know. I still, I mean, when you find a flyer years later mm-hmm. in the home of people known to have this sort of activity in mind, mm-hmm. really hard to say, oh, we've ruled them out. I mean, have you really? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised to hear that. I mean, I feel like, but again, in so many of these cases where you think you had the slam dunk, oh, yeah, this person's good for it. And then it's like some unassuming person that you would never suspect ends up being the one. Yeah. So the Emery brothers seem like the obvious, you know, suspects, suspects but, you know, you know, they did their due diligence on on this, um, at least I believe that they well beyond did their due diligence. But um, over the years, Sheriff Scott has said that more than 20 search warrants have been executed and nearly 40 polygraph tests have been given in this case. Some of those searches were based on the fact that people gave inconsistent statements or were untruthful about the information that they provided initially. Some of them were based on the fact that people were out and about and or had things in their criminal history or in their past that caused us to believe that they may might have knowledge or involvement in the investigation. But no one at any point rose to the level that we considered them an actual suspect. You know, they were they were people of interest that we were exploring the possibility of their having knowledge involvement, but we never found that one piece of evidence that would conclusively say they did. And all the while Melissa never ever lost hope that Lindsay would come back to her. The problem was it was a hard lesson to learn um, not to get your hopes up. Uh, that, that, was, that was a hard thing to learn because every time that they would do a search, I, I just expect, oh, they're going to find her, they're going to find her, you know, and I fully expected that she was going to come home alive. Looking back, and even then, people would say, oh, well, that's, you know, you're in denial. Well, I never denied that that was a possibility, but I just, I still felt her. And to me, that meant she was still on earth. It didn't matter what I thought happened because I couldn't breathe until I knew. And little did I know that even once I knew, breathing would be even more difficult. I never realized it until she was gone that she was my best friend. And I I never realized it until... She wasn't here anymore, but she really was my tiny little best friend, even though she annoyed the crap out of me sometimes (laughs) and she wore me out, um, was my best friend. That's like every mother's dream relationship with their daughter to, to have a daughter who is spunky enough to piss you off, but also so kind and sweet and fun that she's your best friend. Yeah. I mean, I can see you tearing up hearing that. And it, as I was listening to her, it reminded me of you and, and your daughters. And, you know, it's it's a it's a tough thing because all these years later, you can still hear it in her voice. I you don't know? think it'll ever go away. I, I, mean, I mean, that's her little girl. Yeah. And when I was interviewing with her, I just felt like, you know, it's so much to ask her to keep bringing this up again, bringing this up again. And so I was hoping to, you know. There, there's got to be a point to it instead of asking this poor mom to, like, dredge the, you know, the bottom to, but to bring it back But there's a reason up. she wants to talk about it. There is. And we'll get to that. I yes. mean, we're not just doing this to 
traumatize this this poor mom. Yeah. And so also, you know, Sheriff Scott said, looking back on this, you know, a decade later, this is very personal. Um, I have kind of a little shrine to Lindsay in my office um, with her picture and some of the uh, things that the victims put together, you know, and we're handing out to people trying to uh, keep her name and her face in the media and to keep uh, so that, you know, try to generate information about what might have happened. So, yeah, it gets real personal. You uh, can't work something as intensely as this. And, yeah, I have children and I have grandchildren and uh, I have adopted children. And you you can't help but take this very personal after a while. Um, many of my officers work nonstop on this. I literally would have to order people to go home and get some rest. I worked 65 days straight without a day off, 12 to 16 hours a day. We did everything we could to try to find her. This is giving me chills. Yeah. I mean, if anybody was going to find her, it was going to be him. Yeah, and um, and they did find her in May of 2018. I'm here today to share with you that we've brought Lindsay home. We've recovered her. Sadly, she was not recovered as we and her family had hoped and prayed these last nine years. Her remains were recovered in September of 2017, unknowingly, by some hunters in a remote portion of eastern Washington. Those remains were turned over to local authorities who in turn released them to the FBI where they were confirmed to be human and sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia for analysis for DNA. Because the remains were not associated with a specific criminal investigation, they were not analyzed for DNA until just recently. So just in the recent week where we notified that the DNA collected from the remains matched the DNA submitted to the lab in 2009. I have so many questions. Mm -hmm. I have so many. Okay. First of all, this, her remains were found hours from her home, Mm -hmm. several hours from her home in Eastern Washington. Yep. We don't know how she got there. Nope. Uh, Second of all, they were found, my understanding is, not long after the Emery brothers were questioned about her disappearance. <laughs> I just have to mention that yeah. because it, it seems highly coincidental to me. I think it was like a month after the Emery brothers were questioned about Lindsay, her remains were found, which just it. And it wasn't like soon after her disappearance. It was years after her disappearance, but within a month of them being questioned. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is, is that they found a fragment of her skull, a partial skull. So they didn't, that's all they had. The other question I have was what exactly, because he talks about them having to do forensics, like what, what exactly did they find and what were they able to determine about the cause of death? And this is another thing. The only thing that they could determine was that it was Lindsay. They found a piece of her of her skull. Hunters in a very remote wooden area would find this, you know, fra- I've heard the term fragment, piece of skull, and they went to law enforcement. And because it wasn't associated with any case in, in Ellensburg, they, sent, they just sent it to FBI Quantico. And it didn't, you know, it didn't get to the top of the heap because there's no rush on it. And then they found out 
that it was actually Lindsey Baum because they had put her DNA in CODIS. And so the only thing, and I tried to talk with uh, Sheriff Scott about this, was obviously the only clue is that it was a remote area that few people would know about and how to get to. And is that a part of the profile? Because when you have so few clues... Were they able to determine when she was killed? I mean, assuming she was killed. I mean, we don't even know that for a fact. It could have been an accidental death. I don't know. I mean, they are treating it as a kidnapping homicide. Sure. And and I think that, to your point, we we don't know, but we can assume that right. You know, Most that, likely, yes, that, yes, that was the case. But we just is. we don't we know don't for sure. Have, we we don't. They don't have any. And so what they did though, and this is how they have not let any. But could they determine the age of the remains? No. To determine, I feel like there's there is some forensic. <laughs> you feel way. like there should be. I well, know. No, you because want... I've had classes in anthropology. You can tell the age of bones by doing certain things like bone was... density. But you yes, can do like but... bone density tests and things like that. But there wasn't enough. That surprises me. Well, okay. So the same month, and this is how... I'm questioning the investigators now because I want some answers. Damn it. I know, but that's how that's how everybody feels right? in the case. Yes. I mean, uh, did like you... There has to be some answers here. Come on. We actually found a piece of Lindsay. Like, come on. Yeah. But if you noticed in the... In the interview room at the presser, you know, you heard the sounds of seasoned reporters. Yeah. You know, oh, my God. You know, that that in itself shows you. Yeah, they're very quiet normally. That doesn't happen. Right. That doesn't happen. And it's like the case had such a huge impact and they were hoping that um, they could find out more details, which is why for two weekends in that same month of May – a massive effort that included 200 volunteers and law enforcement, 22 canine teams to search that area where her partial skull was found within a two-mile radius. It's located roughly 20 miles west of Ellensburg, known as the Manistosh area. The area is described as steep and heavily timbered with large cliffs and deep ravines. The search is believed to be one of the largest in state history based on the number of personnel involved. They didn't find anything more. They didn't Mm. find anything. So they went to Melissa's house before they gave the press conference in May of 2018. And she says that, you know, when the sheriff and FBI and others showed up at her doorstep, you know, obviously she knew that it it wasn't good news. And I said, so is this, you know, do you have any, just give you any new information? And he said, we have a suspect. A suspect, and he like corrected himself mid-word uh, from single to plural. And I said, "Is it?" And I said the name of who I believed it to be. And he, he, they, they acknowledged without acknowledging. I don't know how to describe it. And so at that moment, I, I don't. I just felt hope drain through my feet. Like I just, I remember kind of shaking and. um were you by yourself? Did you have any other? Was your yeah. son with you, or you no. were? You were no, no. My no, my son didn't live with me at that point. He was living in Lacey. Um, he's tw- he's almost twenty four. <laughs> um, I feel like time stopped for you that night, in a way. It did, and unfortunately, my son lost his mother too, and it's done more damage to him than anybody could ever imagine, and he. He was never considered a victim. He spent most of those nine years being a suspect, at least in the court of public opinion. And um, nobody saw him for the victim that he was. And 
it's damaged our relationship probably irreparably forever. He he went he moved back to Tennessee two weeks later, and I haven't seen him since. We talk, but um, you mean two weeks after, left, after after the after, after we found out. Yeah, he said that um, he he felt vindicated, and and I was glad for that because finally he felt like now they know I didn't murder my sister. And sadly, they don't though. I mean. They, they, there's no proof of who did. I mean, until they have, I, I feel like, until they have a, a really good suspect, someone that they can actually take to trial, there's always going to be people who will have doubts. Well, they would have to be crazy people because he was 10, 12 years old. There's I agree. No, there's no way that he could drive her away, like put dri- then drive her to I agree, a remote but, wooded, wooded but area. I you know there Allensburg. are people out there who did think that he was a suspect, who did think that he had something to do with it. Yeah, and the thing thing is, is another heartbreaking turn in this story is how Melissa feels that she's been treated. I truly believe if Lindsay had been a generations deep lifer in McClary, it would have been a whole nother ball game. But we were an out of town family that moved and uh, I was a full time working mom that worked out of town. So it wasn't like we got a chance to get involved in the community, but we got to know people at the local grocery store and the video store and the little local shell station right next to our house. And, but from the very beginning, I, the circles, they, they circled the wagon uh, is what it was. And I, I just always dismissed it as, um, because so many of the initial people that were, questioned or investigated or searched or whatever were generational counties. I don't know. I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just don't know how else to refer to them as, you know, life, lifelong McCleary people, but generation wise have been looked at and they were feeling defensive, which I could understand as a community member, how people could feel that way. What I never understood was why they blamed me for it. It was like they thought I had a magic wand and I was just pointing it at whoever I didn't think looked like I'd like them and telling the FBI and the sheriff, oh, go search them, make their lives hell because I just don't like the way they look. Honestly, None of the people, especially that were publicly searched, were even anybody that I'd ever even seen or heard of before. So that couldn't have been further from the truth. But that was the feeling that I always felt like they felt like I was purposely trying to destroy the reputation of their community and their residents. And it's felt like that from day one. And I've, I've never understood, not from everybody. There's a lot of wonderful people in McCleary. And there's a, especially a lot of new residents to McCleary that I am just thrilled with the support that I've gotten from people that have moved to town since she disappeared. And which is interesting considering all I've heard from the mayor since she came into office is how my banners are offensive and they're scaring people from moving to McCleary. Yet they've got a whole bunch of new people in McCleary. It's surprising to hear her talk that way because it sounded like when the search was happening, I mean, she got so much support from everybody in town. The sheriff, the chief of police sound like they were really on her side and wanting to figure this out as quickly as possible. They brought in everybody they could think of to work on this case. So it's surprising to now hear her say that she didn't feel like she got the support that she needed from the town. Well, remember, this goes on for over a decade, right? And so I think that the two can be true, where on the one hand, there's no doubt 
that law enforcement prioritized this case in a way that was huge and took it very seriously and continued to take it seriously. But, you know, small towns, you know, there's a lot going on. And I don't live. Let me just put the disclaimer out there. You know, this is, you know, McCleary McCleary sounds like a, a wonderful place, but this is Melissa's perspective that she's sharing. And, you know, we're going to get into these banners. I don't know if you, um, in that cut, she refers to some banners that she put up, and I'll let you be the the judge here. The city council meeting where one of the council members stated that I'm tired of every time somebody Googles McCleary, Washington, Lindsay Baum pops up. Well, I have news for that city council person. I'm going to make it my life's mission to make sure that Lindsay will be the only, I mean, well, I guess I shouldn't say that, but I have no intentions on letting the world forget that Lindsay Baum and McCleary go hand in hand because they do. Even once justice has been served, I, I don't see why she's such a stain. It's not like she's the first horrific tragedy or crime that happened in that community. So I looked up the cases that she was referring to. Apparently there was a sexual assault of a 12 and 16 year old by a guy who preyed on vulnerable girls in 2019. And the other crime she referred to was one that you covered in one of our previous episodes about the teen Brian Brian Bassett who killed his mother, father, and five-year-old brother in their McCleary home in 1995. So he was 16 at the time, and after being convicted, he received a life sentence. The playground at the park is named after the little boy, um, Austin, from that case. But then last, in 2018, when we put up the, um, or 2019, when we put up the Remembrance Garden and the bench, some people were very verbal about, oh, well, what about Austin? They're just trying to overdo and overpower and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden accusing me of trying to erase Austin from the history. And mind you, we we reached out and spoke with Austin's sister. And we asked if they wanted to do something together and make it, you know, do something in conjunction. And they were very comfortable with what they had. They were very encouraging and very supportive of what we were doing and had no problems in any way, shape, or form. And everything we did, we did to enhance or to to go with the playground. Like, it's placed just at the entrance of the playground. It, it, it's a bench, and, and we'd like to put a couple more of the butterfly benches so that, you know, people can sit and, and, and have some, you know, a few reflective moments with their children or to sit and watch their children on the playground or maybe have a teaching moment about safety I mean, that was my idea, and I've never understood why so many people had been so against it. I can only say that I think sometimes people who haven't lost children don't understand, truly, because as someone who has lost a child, when we laid her to rest in the cemetery, there's a children's section where it's nothing but small gravestones and tributes to children. And knowing that she was there in that section with the other children meant a lot. It doesn't take away from the other children that have been lost. It allows you to appreciate them all and love them all together. And that's why when I said this was the most emotional, most difficult interview that I've ever done with with Melissa Baum, because 
you know, you go into a case, we go into these cases, and they're all tragedies, let's just say, and we yeah. do true crime. But there's something about this case and knowing not only that she lost her daughter, but then all of the politics and all of the everything else that goes into it and being a single mom and what that, you know, just the piling on of emotional baggage for her just continues to this day. And she can't, I'm just imagining, you know, how do you come to terms with what has happened with your daughter and, and remember her and have happy memories when people are still giving you a hard time about it? Yeah. So let's circle back to what Melissa's been referring to about her banners. So the original banners had a picture of Lindsay, and on the banner it said, Do you know who kidnapped me? Now that banner was at the park, and it's just on, you know, one of the fence lines, and, you know, it's a big, you know, picture of Lindsay. And it's also at the sheriff's office, and these were up for almost a decade, okay? The banner was replaced at the park on June 29th, the 11th anniversary of Lindsay's kidnapping. That was just this year, right? So just this year. Okay. So the kidnapping word was replaced with, do you know who murdered me? Here's the McClary mayor and some of the council members talking about the posters at a council meeting this past July. I left it long because I wanted you to get the full flavor of the, I wanted you to get the full picture of the meeting, to be fair. Have you heard back yet from the advocacy group or the sheriff's department on the banners on where they need to return to? So I had an email back from the undersheriff, is that his title? Indicating that they, that's not their banner, quote unquote. Um, Like, I guess the banner belongs to some group and not particularly to the victim. So they couldn't use the victim's advocate group to contact them about it because it's not her sign. Can you take it down and have somebody pick it up? Well, that was his suggestion to me was that, well, you could just take it down. I'm sure you'll get a call. (laughs) I need to decide if I want to get that call. It's on city property. Oh, it's on city property, and I think that we should take it down, roll it up, and then if somebody wants it, they can come pick it up. Yeah, and I let him know that we do still have the one hanging on the police department right now. There, it's still hanging on the of the police department. On city property, and I think that we should take both of them down, and I think we should roll them up. I don't think it's appropriate that those be up any longer. We have the memorial. Right. And that's permanent, and that's not coming down. I think both of those ba- – I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm hearing too much about these banners in town, and people don't like to – You go to the park, and you see – And there's children playing there, that's you know. Sad. So I think we should take them down. They're on city property. If somebody asks, say, well, we took them down. You're welcome to pick them up. Why, if it was allowed to remain for 11 years, do you now all of a sudden feel like this is an eyesore that has to come down tomorrow? I think that's the big question. I mean, I think Melissa wants to know an answer to that, and she has, you know, gotten an attorney. Right. I mean, I know it was changed from kidnapped to murdered, but the way that they're talking about the sign is the fact that, well, they didn't get approval. We need to have an ordinance. You know, this yeah, is it's political it's, speak. It's public property. The way they're talking about it is as if it's like a, an advertisement or something like that. Yeah. It's not. This this is completely different, and it needs to be treated with the respect and the understanding and compassion 
that seems to be lacking. And that's the rub right now. And what's really interesting is that so they put it up in June at the anniversary. By August, it was taken down by the city. The banner is now back up. Mayor Orford said Melissa Baum has legal counsel, which she and I talked about. um, And the banner remains what's going to happen undetermined at this time. So more political speak. The ironic thing is is that there was a GoFund, uh, GoFundMe page that happened, um, and they have raised over $2,800 with a goal of $3,500 for people to actually put the signs in their yard in addition to the banners. <laughs> so it's like you're going to blow up that big banner at the park, yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's going to land all over the town in everybody's lawns. I think that is the most appropriate response. Yeah, so I reached out to the mayor for comment, haven't heard back. Um, I Shocking. Emailed, yeah, I emailed one of the council members because I didn't want to just dump on them because right. again, we don't live in McCleary. We don't we don't know you know, this is very emotional. Going on that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean on the face of it, I, I mean I feel it's pretty clear that at the very least they could have found Melissa. She lives in Elma and said, you know, the mayor could have called her up and yeah. said, hey, you know, we are getting some, you know, concern. Is there, is there, can we move this? We really want to help and find, you know, I mean, there could have been a conversation. And why take the one down at the police department? They want it down. I mean, I Melissa mean, that doesn't would say. make any sense because it is one of their top cases ever. Mm-hmm. You have this banner to bring awareness to it. Mm-hmm. Why would you not leave that up? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Melissa feels like this is just yet, you know, she's like, this has been going on. This is what it's been like. The whole time this has happened. I mean, this has been her experience with not with everybody, but with town leaders, with with politicians and things like that. I mean, so anyway, I reached out to one of the the council members, Jenna Amsbury. Apparently, she wasn't on that Zoom call. And I think she's like a, a more compassionate and was like, I want to learn more before I make a decision. So I thought, you know, she'd be a good person to go to, to be like, hey, what's going on Help in this town? Understand. Help us understand yeah. this. So she said, um, quote, I appreciate seeing more outlets bring light to the bomb case. I cannot speak on behalf of the city as I am just one of five council members. The mayor is the public spokesperson for the city. I am new to my role, but trying to get educated on all the history as well. Thank you for the work you do to help bring awareness, end quote. She wouldn't elaborate further because I asked again and she didn't respond back. I mean, she obviously doesn't want to, you know, touch this with a 10-foot pole. So I want to end by talking about Lindsay. You know, it was less than two weeks before her 11th birthday. I asked Melissa to tell me what she was like. She was trying to grow up too fast, and we battled over it. You know, like our most recent argument at the time of her disappearance was she wanted to dye her hair black with red highlights. And I was adamant that that was not going to happen. Or her cutting up all her brand new jeans. We'd just gone a couple of months before she disappeared and and bought, you know, a bunch of clothes, including, you know, four or five pairs of Amber Crombie and Finch jeans. And she was so excited because it was the first time that she had, like, she was just starting to fill out because she was so tiny. She'd always had to wear slim jeans. And finally, she could wear these from the store because she could fit into them. (laughs) Um, but she cut the knees out of them. And so we were fighting about that. And I'm like, I mean, you're from now on, you get goodwill jeans and that's it. it. Yeah. The typical mother daughter, (laughs) typical, typical. So it sounds like she was really coming into her own, you know, like, Oh, definitely. She, she was always a force to be reckoned with. She was never meek a mile a minute. She sometimes 
she would just exhaust me listening to her or watching her would just wear me. And I would tell her like, oh, Lindsay, you make me tired just listening to you. (laughs) And I asked the heartbreaking question, what she misses most about her daughter. I edited out the nearly full minute of silence before she began to answer. I don't even know what don't I miss. I mean, I even miss the tantrums and the door slamming and the fighting with her brother. I I don't know what I don't miss. Um, just spending time together, watching movies. Um, last night I was watching a Harry Potter marathon, and as um, was watching the Deathly Hallows Part Two, the final movie, and I, I realized that. She didn't even get to see the Half-Blood Prince because that was due to come out two weeks after she disappeared. That's what we were going to do for her birthday. And as I was watching it, I just got to thinking about my kids and I. I raised them. You know, we the first Harry Potter movie we ever saw, they were two and three years old. And we fell in love with it. And my kids and I saw every single one as they were released. And when Lindsay disappeared, we were in the middle of of reading The Chamber of Secrets, the second book, together at night. We had started taking turns reading. And I'd read until I got tired, and then she'd read. And I'd usually fall asleep while she was reading because she could read for hours. Melissa doesn't live in McCleary. She says it's too painful. But she's in nearby Elma because she won't stop until they catch the person responsible for kidnapping and murdering her daughter. And Sheriff Scott says they are still actively investigating her case. And he said in that press conference, you know, when they announced that they had positively identified Lindsay from the partial skull, you know, they believe in this case, it's going to be that tip. It's going to be somebody coming forward because they don't have any DNA. They don't have clothes to examine. They don't have a body. There's someone out there that knows who did this and how this happened. And there's people out there that have information that would be the nugget that we need to explode this investigation and culminate in an arrest. We need those people to have the courage to come forward and share that information. Anonymously, through a text message, however it is they wish to convey that. That's why we've got an email uh, dedicated to this. We've got a tip line dedicated to this. Somebody out there has that nugget of information that we need to bring this case to complete closure and culminate in an arrest. We urge those people to have the courage to come forward. And finally, I asked Melissa if she thought they would find her daughter's killer. I do. I think they're going to get him. Um, that I've never hindered in because I'm not going to stop until it's done. I mean, I might just get crazier and crazier as the years pass, but I'm, my mission will remain intact. I'm, um, I'm not going to let them forget her because her life meant something. And, um, with her life, they, they didn't just take her life. They, they took a future of, of my son and, and myself that we all should have had. I'm just not going to let that go unnoticed. I'm not going to let that be forgotten. And I'm not going to let the fact that there is still a child murderer on the street. And if I can do something to stop that next victim, I will do anything I can to stop that person from taking someone else's child. Because it's a fact. It is statistically proven that they will if they haven't already. 
Well, we will definitely have photos of Lindsay as well as information on where you can contact investigators. If there's any chance you have even the slightest bit of information or know someone who might, you know, where you can reach out and share that information. And they also have a private investigator. She hooked up with Ann Bremner. Who oh, we love. thank goodness. That is a perfect yeah. person for her to be working with. <laughs> so Ann is working pro bono to help with pieces of the, you know, to help her out with pieces of the investigation. And then Rose at winquestinvestigations.com. She is also a private investigator with loads and loads of experience. She's working on this as well. Um, And there's also a $35,000 reward. So we'll have all that information up on our website and share. Just share, because you never know. I mean, think about all the cases where the killers have been found in another state. Mm-hmm. It's not that unusual. And what I love, too, about um, Sheriff Scott is that he said the fresh eyes. Like, you know, sometimes fresh eyes does see things in a huge case. Um, we know that that happened in the uh, Mandy Stavick case where mm-hmm. a new detective came on the scene and it was like, hey, well, why don't we do this? And now they had DNA. So they, their job was. Well, think about the Hillside Strangler, right? I mean, doing the the dirty deeds down in California. Nothing happened. But Mm -hmm. then they came up to Washington and all of a sudden different investigators were looking at it and they caught him. Yeah. So fresh eyes. And I love it that he's open to that. And there's still people she's got, you know, Melissa has people in her court. So what do we got going on for next week? So I'm really excited about next week's case because we're going to be talking with somebody who was a citizen sleuth who turned into one of the nation's leading experts on familial genealogy and actually helped solve a case that was more than 50 years old. Susan Galvin, a 20-year-old woman, her body found in a parking garage at the Seattle Center in 1967. We'll be talking about what finally led to her killer and how this new technology could be breaking cold cases left and right in the future. And before we sign off for the week, I just wanted to send up a big thank you to all of our listeners. And, you know, if you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button. You know that we would really love it if you could take a minute, give us a review on iTunes, you know, four, five, six stars. How many can we get? That really means a lot to us. And we would love it if you'd reach out on Facebook at Scene of the Crime Podcast, Instagram, or on our website, seeingthecrimepodcast.com with cases that you'd like us to look into. We're definitely open for suggestions. Thanks for listening. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime. <laughs>